This is Geek Gab with your host, Dornall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, February 4th, 2023. Dornall, how was your week? Hey, man. It's great. How about yours? Wow, that was filled with detail. I am overwhelmed. <laughs> uh, so the week's been good. Uh, it's been a slow week here at the Chateau d'Orino. Uh What can I say? But uh, we've got a mild winter in the Pacific Northwest. So I'm doing my homework as far as what I'm going to do for gardening this year. Uh, as well as uh, home improvement projects. I'm going to make myself very busy this year. Uh, in nerdy news, I am excited to talk about more role-playing game stuff. We had a nice Dungeon Delve session on Thursday. Great scholarship coming out of the Bro SR as usual. Uh, and uh, when I needed time to relax, uh, me and the significant other have been relaxing and catching up on the jack ryan show uh, series on amazon so that's my week um i uh i was playing in the bro sr session this week and uh i do kind of have to apologize to people because um i had a huge migraine during the game and migraines typically make me very sleepy they put me out and so i fell asleep during the game uh and i had a chance to apologize to dornall after or to uh jeffro after because he was running the session um and i really am sorry that i fell asleep it just um, yeah, it, it was embarrassing, but you were uncharacteristically quiet. Oh yeah, I was I was out of it the whole session. I was just like absolutely not talking at all, and then bam. So, but other than that, my week has been good. A lot of work got done this week. Um, I picked up some stuff that I had set aside because see, here's, here's my design process. And it's really, really good that this project is so huge because it lets me optimize my design process. I pick up something and I make some innovations and I develop it to the point where I've done all the work I can on it right now. And then I have to set it aside and go on and work on something else, probably something completely different. Um, And then I come back around to it weeks or months or sometimes years later, and I have a different perspective on it. And sometimes my perspective was, what the hell does this note mean? What was I (laughs) thinking and sometimes the perspective is oh okay i remember this 
and I remember all this and, you know, I just pick it back up right where I left off. And because I'm coming at it fresh, I see where things need to change. And I also have developed other concepts in other areas that shine light on this. And now I can improve it because I have new tools. I have new concepts. I have new ideas. And I can see where, okay, let's take this idea that I developed for something completely different and apply it here. And things, uh, it allows me to make it better and, and put it in a, in a better light. Obviously, this process can't continue indefinitely. Um, but it really is just awesome. It really helps to make everything better. There's a synergy between the different areas of the project. And, uh, you know, it's satisfying that everything helps improve everything else. That sounds really satisfying. I mean, I know you just said that, but. So, yeah. That uh, that speaks to the power of of honestly taking notes, which is and I mentioned that that sound might seem like a strange thing to mention, but I'm not in the habit of keeping notes, so I'm I'm always in a process of sort of rethinking and rediscovering things uh, that I've been working on, which uh, sometimes that's a benefit in my day job, and sometimes uh, sometimes it sets me back. I yeah. Uh... I've said the number of notes I have in my notepad before. The iOS and OS 10, or OS 11 now, I guess, notes application, which I am utterly certain was not built to handle the kind of abuse I'm throwing at it. I've said it before. I, I don't remember which show, but... It was something like 13,000 or 15,000 or whatever. But mm -hmm. between then and now, I am now up to 20,137 notes in that <laughs> notepad. Crazy. Uh, the number of notes is so high, my phone now refuses to sync those notes. It just flat out. 100%, if I add a new note, it cannot in any way, shape, or form sync them. Uh, so that's, uh, yeah, that's kind of a problem. So now I have to depend on my iPad. I have to depend on my uh, computer, and I have to depend on another program to hold the notes temporarily until I copy them back into the notes app. Jeez. I am, I am, when I say that I am abusing this program, as I've said in the past, it's an SQL database. And apparently it has to load the entire database into memory. Um, and the whatever query it runs in the database to find new nodes that need to be synced is just not up to the task with the amount of RAM the phone has. 
Uh, well, that's the downside of doing everything uh, the way you're doing it. Uh, there's lots of other systems for managing notes, but uh, I don't think uh, doing so much on your phone is not. Uh, you should think about getting something specifically just for the phone that, that automatically syncs to the cloud instead of, you know what I'm saying? Instead of using the same notes app and having it try to sync 20,000 notes, uh, there's probably a different program you could use or set up a different account for that. So that you can write notes on your phone or take notes on your phone and and, and do it as a write only thing instead of trying to read 20,000 notes on your phone. Just a thought. Um, slightly different uh, subject. You know what's really, really cool about taking notes on the phone? I can do it in the shower. <laughs> it's true. Shower and thoughts yeah. go straight. Shower thoughts go straight to the internet these days, don't they? Um, I can use my voice. Uh, I just love this technology. I love 2023 technology. I can use the voice transcription feature to transcribe notes to the phone while the shower is running. And it's really accurate. I mean, really accurate. Uh, when I go back to correct it, there was just like, and, and I just did this like last week. Um, there was like one or two errors that fixed real quick. And I had to fix them real quick. Otherwise, the note would have been completely incomprehensible. But I fixed them real quick. And then I, uh, you know, I had this note that I just turned around, picked up my phone, and started dictating right in the shower because I got a good idea that I knew I would never remember uh, once I got out of the shower. Um, sleep deprived means your memory gets shot in a lot of weird ways. Um, so, uh, and then sometimes you can type them out if the face of your phone isn't too wet. Um, which can happen, but not in the kind of shower I'm in right now. So, yeah, it is awesome to just dictate a note into your phone and click OK and have your phone uh, sync it to a cloud account. And it's backed up and it's there and it's highly surprisingly accurate, given the amount of noise the shower makes. I mean... You know, I saw a mm -hmm. tweet today from an engineering account I follow, World of Engineering, I think. And they asked, what technology do you technically understand but still seems like magic? And I would have to say being able to voice transcribe in the middle of a white noise hurricane like a shower. Absolutely. The, the the technology just in the past five years uh, has really improved. Uh, you notice it when you use good voice services versus poor voice services. Uh, Discord's super popular free voice channel that people use for online gaming or whatever. We you know most people who play D and D online tend to use it. Uh, but uh, my microphone's always picking up. 
uh, background noise. Uh, my furnace was just running just a few feet behind me. And uh, you didn't hear it here on the show, but it's here all over Discord. But uh, when you use a good service, uh, Microsoft Teams, uh, your iPhone, right? It, the the software is so good and so adept at filtering out all that unnecessary noise. It's it's difficult to really believe how effective it is at filtering that noise out. Um, and you can, I mean, you notice the difference every day. See, here's the thing. Um, and we've learned this from Twitter that tech companies, big tech companies are shot through with FBI, CIA, whatever, uh, as employees, not as, you know, secret agents secretly working for them. And what I hear, um, from some people is that when companies develop these codecs, develop these techniques, that they agree not to release them for up to five years and give the CIA um, five years of exclusivity. So just imagine a CIA bugging microphone. How much? Uh, value they get out of a bugging microphone that cancels all noise in the room and lets them just focus on the people talking, right? Mm -hmm. Phenomenal applications for surveillance. Um, and then we get it five years later. That's how the CIA stays ahead of the industry. It stays ahead of what is commercially available to uh, everybody else. And I heard the same thing about, um, and I'm going to get the codec wrong, H.265? Am I, I right? Am I wrong? The, the, the codec that went into Blu-rays that was high-def uh, streaming that just really, really compressed high-def video Far, far better than everybody else, uh, anything else in the MPEG family. Um, and, and really how it worked was it was a much more efficient codec that required more processing power. And it was beautiful. It was clear. It didn't have the borders around the edges. didn't have artifacts on the screen. So it could use less bandwidth because it could compress more because it uh, needed more processing time. And so the advancements in CPUs, you had faster CPUs, so the faster CPUs could decode it quickly enough to throw it up on the screen without you, um, without there being stutters or, or stops in the video. So it was just a, a, a case of using the computing power that was now available. But these advanced codecs allowed you to stream high-def video now because they use so little bandwidth, so little data in comparison to earlier video codecs. But again, the CIA would get five years use out of that before uh, they got released. And then all of a sudden, everybody had them. You know, multiple companies had these high-def codecs. And it wasn't because they all developed them simultaneously. It was because 
they all had agreements with the CIA to not use them, to <laughs> to not release them commercially. Um, so yeah, you know, we get codecs like this that have been sort of on the shelf where the companies have been improving um, because they've been in covert tech. They've been in, uh, you know, the, what do they call it? The intelligence community. They've been in the, the intelligence, intelligence the hands of the intelligence community. So yeah. That's, that's how. Sort of like generic drugs all of a sudden. Yeah, all of a sudden, multiple manufacturers have them. Um, and they're still licensing it from the people who have the patents, but uh, everybody's ready to go as soon as that, as soon as that deadline expires. And, and then the CIA still gets to use them after that. It's just that, you know, companies really seriously start making money after that on them. Yeah, likewise, tech companies. <laughs> Uh, although, as a quick tangent, I did watch a video, a talk some guy did about a, two years ago, about the state of video and audio codecs, uh, maybe video more so than video that, or audio that, then uh, a lot of the old experts who really understood the nuts and bolts and the whys and hows of codecs, they're all starting to retire. And uh, a lot of people in tech don't understand the nuts and bolts. So that'll be interesting in the next few years. I'll keep my eye on that. Speaking of the CIA, uh, for the past few years, ever since the, you know, the intelligence community and, and the CIA has become more commonly associated with nefarious deeds, there seems to be a pretty big push in entertainment media to liven up that image or or what's that restore that image repair their reputation repair their reputation um i'm i'm drawing a blank but there's a a new show i think it was on netflix it's sort of like a show about cia office drones and I'm drawing a blank right now uh, about uh, it. It sounds kind of. Yeah. Severance, which was on Apple Plus. I bet that's oh, not it, though. No, that's not it. That's not it. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and remember the name of it, but don't watch it at all. It's, it's awful. Uh, CIA paper pushers and, and intelligence drones, you know, are presented as the good guys and you know right off the bat they're they're investigating some so-called domestic terrorists out there in you know that in the mountain country of the u.s where all the all the really bad nefarious militias are do they wear red hats <laughs> kind of uh, and completely unironically uh not realizing you know not acknowledging what everybody knows that uh, no matter what flavor, be it rightist or leftist, uh, uh, militia or domestic terror cell has something like 75 to 80% feds anyway. 
but uh, all from uh, different agencies, and none of whom know that the others are there. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And uh, Criminal Minds just started a new season, uh, which uh, I watched some of, and that's a half and half. Uh, Criminal Minds is just your sort of. Is anybody listening who doesn't know what Criminal Minds is? Uh, it's 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 a crime drama. It's it's a it's a gory serial killer of the week, uh, you know, crime show about the behavioral analysis unit at the FBI, right? So here's another show that that it get a comeback. They brought mostly the whole cast back. Yeah, they're older now, but uh, yeah. Uh, they're trying to pretend that they're in one little corner of the FBI that isn't completely full of scumbags. Um, yeah, Bradford Walker <laughs> is incredulous. Is it still going? No, I, I think in, it wasn't still going. I think it just came back for, I think, 16th season. Uh, it hasn't been around for years, uh, but they, they brought a Verdi back for a new season, and uh, that's mixed. Uh, the writing is... is uh, is pretty mediocre. Uh, some of the familiar characters, if you know, if you enjoyed the characters on the show, which was sort of part of the appeal, um, a lot of the characters returned, so uh, that's kind of nice. And the uh, the ongoing season is is kind of interesting because instead of doing just a criminal of the week sort of thing, they decided to write a full season. Uh, where they're chasing one particular serial killer, but the serial killer spawns. Uh, one of the things that he does is he helps other serial killers or, or other would be murderers. So it generates lots of cases of the week. They've been watching the mentalist, the mentalist. Yeah. The mentalist. Uh, it's a show about a guy who used to be one of those fake psychics, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and he's chasing after a serial killer who has this like cult of serial killers around him who are always doing things. And so they do have cases of the week, but you know, every now and then they have a uh, what uh, somebody called a continuity show, which is where they actually have someone who is linked to this serial killer he's actually chasing down. Um, and, uh, it's another serial killer who this guy is linked up with and is helping. Very similar. Very similar. Yeah. Video Mirador. CBS canceled Criminal Minds, but it's, uh, they, I think they brought it back for, I think just this one season and it's, uh, it's on Paramount plus just double checked. Uh, that's okay if if you if you watch the show where you didn't mind it or you liked it, um, you you it's all right. Uh, it was kind of cool seeing some of the familiar characters again. Uh, like I said, the writing isn't great, but uh, and also uh, in twenty twenty three, watching anything that lionizes anyone in the FBI is sort of a bit of an eye roller. But I think we all uh, we all hope and expect that there are good people trying to legitimately solve crimes. Uh, out there um, which um, please go ahead I just uh, 
Go ahead. Are we going to get canceled? Are we going to get canceled? No, no, no. I was just, we're talking about streaming. Um, I just want to mention this real quick. They uh, released 2022's top 15 streaming programs overall. Um, What's the and measure? And seven of them um, rank based on persons uh, two plus minutes viewed in billions of people. Nielsen's streaming content ratings covering Netflix, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, Apple TV Plus, Hulu, HBO Max, um, Peacock, so on and so forth. Uh, those are the only uh, platforms they cover. None of the really small ones. But half of them are actual TV shows on broadcast television that are on streaming services now, and most of them are on Netflix. So we're talking NCIS, Grey's Anatomy, Criminal Minds, Seinfeld, Supernatural, The Simpsons. Um, oh, oh yeah, uh, including all those quote unquote reruns, absolutely. But it is true that while NCIS is second, um, the top five other than NCIS are all original streaming series, except Encanto, which is a Disney movie, which is number five. I don't know yeah. if that was released directly to Disney Plus or if that was ever in the theaters. And that oddly one... enough, that's the only. Yeah, that one was in the theaters. Oddly enough, that's the only movie in the top 15 shows. Um, but the streaming shows are ones, you know, Stranger Things, number one. Uh, Coco Melon, Netflix, uh, probably a Netflix original series, I believe. Ozark, definitely a Netflix original series. Um, Bluey on Disney+. Plus. Uh, Gilmore Girls. <laughs> I didn't mention. So that takes them to eight <laughs> of the 15. Um, Wednesday, uh, which only had eight episodes and came in late in the year, so didn't get you know as much opportunity as the other ones, was nevertheless cracked uh, the top 15. Cobra Kai busted the top 15. So these are the big streaming shows you've heard of. Oh yeah, just they were sort of like Game of Thrones, that very popular, present in in the pop culture for a certain time. On top of the perennial favorites like NCIS and you know other TV, other shows that got their ratings so high by old people falling asleep with the TV on. <laughs> what is Heartland? Don't know. I've never what, heard do you of know it. What's... It came in number 13. I It's on Netflix, but I don't know. It has 225 episodes. Uh, 225 episodes. Which would make it insanely successful. It's something in Canada. Uh, or it's made in Canada. A multi-generational oh, saga on... set in Alberta and centered on a family getting through life together in both happy and trying times. Oh, so it's on Canadian television. 
Yeah. Okay. But Amer apparently Americans who started watching it on Netflix made it popular on Netflix. All right. Yeah. Uh, moving on to the, to the crime shows. I've been catching up on uh, Jack Ryan, the Tom Clancy character. He's had his own series on uh, Amazon. And they got... Uh, That's John where Cousins. the CIA thing was going. That's where the CIA thing was going. Yeah, he's a you know former Marine CIA analyst who somehow ends up on half of the you know run and gun extraction missions uh, because he's such a badass, a famous Tom Clancy character. Uh, so John Krasinski from The Office is Jack Ryan, and I think this came out in 2018, and they took a few years break. Uh, so they had two seasons. 2018, 2019, and then they just uh, produced uh, a third season last year, and it ran throughout 2022. So I've been catching up on that. Um, more or less burned through the first two seasons, and uh, I think I'm halfway through the... It's only an eight-episode third season, but I'm halfway through that. Uh, have you seen any of it? I, I think we might have talked about it on the show, but... I have seen the first season. I have not seen the second season or the third, but I think they're advertising another season coming out. I'm not surprised. It's it's entertaining. Uh, well, I mean, we'll talk about the good and the bad, but uh, yeah, there's a there's a big mystery un that unfolds over the course of a season because, you know. It's whether it's terrorists or, uh, you know, a civil war somewhere in South America or, or something like that. There's, uh, pe people get murdered and assassinated. Things blow up. Things happen, and, uh, early in the season, the analyst Jack Ryan, uh, who's either a part of the situation or aware of the situation, uh, discovers clues that there's a greater conspiracy afoot, and so they spend the whole season going you know, introducing all these different characters that are sort of players, pieces on the chessboard. And uh, what makes that part really entertaining is that it's not always clear who's on whose side. Uh, you know, there's uh, Jack Ryan and his, his CIA partners, and then all the other guys who are usually various flavors of bad guy. Uh, so, you know, the overall season arc is, is pretty, uh, engaging and entertaining on top of that the pacing of each individual episode most of them are very good uh it's it's a it's a pretty exciting show to watch be also because the action set pieces are good uh something that i did not expect even from a big budget amazon production uh you know lots of firefights lots of explosions uh you know, and they all involve in characters that are important to the plot. It's not just racking up a body count to rack up a body count. Uh, so what did you think of the first season? Or what did you like about it or, or didn't like? Um, yeah, that first season. That was the season. That was the first one that I watched when it was the first. <laughs> I don't know. I'd have to 
go back to the show where we talked about it, honestly. I mean, it was, I remember liking the show. I remember liking Krasinski doing a good job. Um, and I remember that it was, you know, there were the bad guys had some really cool plots involving a shootout and an ambulance. And that was some cool scenes. And the other things that happened, I remember liking it. I remember thinking there was some flawed stuff there, but uh, overall, the impression it left on me was positive. I can't remember details right now to discuss, but it left a positive impression in my mind. Um, I haven't avoided watching it because I don't want to watch it. I haven't seen it because I've had a lot of other things to watch, and it has just consistently not been a, a necessity. Well, let me tell you, uh, the the first season was Middle Eastern terrorists, and then the yes. second season, uh, which was actually which, which wasn't as good, the setting was Venezuela, very very well timed, very topical. And you know, there's a, a there's about to be a civil war in Venezuela or the ongoing troubles in Venezuela, and. Uh, Jack's in middle of that. Once again, they introduce a bunch of characters. Uh, uh, people die. Uh, the CIA is running around trying to figure out, uh, you know, who's who's actually responsible for everything and what's happening. Uh, the third season, they made it super topical, and this is where your red flags might start to stick up. Uh, the third season is about a potential conflict between Russia and the Czech Republic involving uh, Russia uh, right after they took control of Crimea, Crimea and the Ukraine. So here we are, uh, you know, 2022, and Russia's the big bad guy again, uh, which is a little, which would have been surprising before 2022, but here we are. Uh, you know what? And that, I don't, but you're going to tell uh, me. That is actually a purely Tom Clancy style plot. To take a fictional conflict that never happened in the real world and just to make that the focus of the story. Because that's what all of his Jack Ryan novels were. They're fictional conflicts to, uh, that happened. Uh, one of them was set in the Middle East, and somebody assassinated um, the leader of Iraq, Saddam Hussein, and then Iraq and Iran, because it was an Iranian plot, um, got together and formed a new country, the United Islamic Republics, and their terrorists launched a bioterror attack against the United States and the country, while the United States was quarantined, this new country launched an attack and the U.S. troops over in the Middle East who were cut off from reinforcements, who were cut off from resupply and everything, had to fight it off. Well, obviously none of this happened in the real world, but that's what the novel was. So. I give them props for doing exactly what Tom Clancy used to do, at least in, in that part, that particular plot. 
Um, that made me impressed. That impressed me. Uh, that's a good point. And, and it's along those lines that this story unfolds. Uh, it's a little closer to reality uh, in that the primary motivations or, or, or the, the setting that provides the backdrop for all these nefarious actors uh, is the Czech Republic making a deal with the, the United States uh, to have surfaced air missiles s installed, set up on their land, which is, uh, of course, something that the, the Russians do not want. Uh, it's that sort of classic NATO pushing at its borders and, and Russia pushing uh, against its borders, that, that sort of conflict that's been going on for years and years now. Um, that cues really close to the real world, uh, particularly in places like the Czech Republic and Ukraine and, you know, other, you know, former Soviet bloc countries. So it does, it feels like a, set it, a setting that could happen. Um, and uh, one of the things I'll, I'll give them credit for is even though uh, you, you get this, uh, you know, the Russians are presented as imperialistic. It's that faction of Russians. You know, there's there's some of some of them want some of them don't want to you know start World War Three or whatever. But the real villains of the season is a faction of I want to say hardliners, but people who want to cause as much mayhem as possible so that they can you know restore the glory of the '60s. You know, the the Soviet Union expansion. Which, once again, like it's like you said, it's it's so close to real world events and real world politics that it seems believable. And then on, you know, that's that's the setting, that's the setup for, you know, Jack Ryan is going rogue, and you know nobody believes his hunches, uh, but he keeps you know he keeps finding out what the bad guys are doing, but the bad guys are always two steps ahead of him, him and ahead of the audience too, which is kind of nice. They uh they don't uh, they don't reveal too much ahead of time, uh, which makes for pretty engaging. Uh, even even having it on in the background is is really interesting. I don't know if that was damning faint praise or what. Uh, what's bad about it? Honestly, uh, the dialogue's really bad. Uh, Wendell Pierce from in the wire treme you know famous actor he plays uh, jack ryan's superior in all three seasons uh, i get the feeling that they stopped writing for the, him him and they just let him ad lib half of his stuff but all the other characters dialogues obnoxious we had a, a grizzled cia veteran who uh you know left left the agency and you know became an independent contractor right he's basically off in europe you know, making money at the highest bidder, right? Uh, they're they're in a ca car ride, uh, him and Jack Ryan, and and he says, you know, he says something mildly sort of embarrassing, and he he says, hey, it, you know, Jack Ryan's giving him the the stony face, and he says, hey, don't get judgy. <laughs> and I'm like, what? What sort of 24 year old intern wrote that line of dialogue? Um, no. 
nobody says that outside of TikTok. Um, yeah, that's, that's just <laughs> it's it's really bad. That's just one example. Um, other than other than straight, other than the lines that are there for exposition, uh, you know, the banter and and everything, most of it's pretty bad. Uh, but that's not why you're watching. Uh, you're you know you're watching for the suspense, the tension, the the who done it, and most importantly the action scenes when everything comes together and the shooting starts. That's the thing. It's pretty entertaining. Though uh, I'm like I said, I haven't finished the third season yet. I reserve the right to come back next week and say that it ended really stupid. All right, but I I don't I don't recommend the second season. I do recommend the third season if you if you're interested, at least get started on it. It's pretty fun. Cool. Am I right? Because you've just seen the first season recently. Am I right about a shootout involving a hospital yeah. ambulance and stuff? Yeah, there's a the, the sort of the climactic final episode was an attempt on the life of the president while he's at a hospital, and so mm. the whole there's you know there's cat and mouse games as the bad guys are trying to locate the president and uh, and finally it you know it culminates in some of the bad guys escaping. Uh, they used ambulances to get there, and so there's uh, there's a chase and a shootout and uh you know jack ryan finally gets his man uh, but yeah that's that's how the season ended it was a really cool uh really cool ending great episode i really rem i i knew i remembered liking that mm -hmm. all right speaking of changing the subject changing the subject abruptly uh, the only thing the only thing else I had on my plate was uh, we want to talk a little bit about D and D because it never ends every week. Besides you falling asleep. Oh, I you should know you and everybody listening. I put some links in the show notes for today. I know I mentioned it the past couple of weeks, but um, Bradford Walker is hanging out in the chat. Awesome blog posts where he's going through the rules of AD&D, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, uh, with his intended audience being someone who has never played or has only played other role-playing games. Really try to get to nuts and bolts. You know, here's the basic rules. Here's what you do. And uh, with a little bit of here's why. Really good stuff. He just spent like five straight blog posts going over a melee combat, which is is one of the most confusing parts to a lot of DMs. Really good uh, stuff. Really interesting. I highly recommend it. Um, I believe that's BradfordCWalker.blogspot.com. And we were talking about you were falling asleep during the episode, the, the episode during the game. But uh, Jeffro's session reports are back uh, on his blog which, uh, once again, link is in the uh, show notes on YouTube. Uh, we are 
we are once I, th I think we're innovating. I think we're not just uh, relearning or, or learning how AD&D was meant to be played. I think we're innovating. We brief we briefly mentioned, uh, you know, level one fighters starting their own mercenary companies from level one, right? Um, yeah. Just the just the effect that that's had on play. Uh, just regular session play, dungeon delving. Uh, it's tough for me to describe without experiencing it, but, uh, but there as a force multiplier, as a damage sponge, as a you know as logistical help you know one of the one of the biggest problems of playing a game and and acquiring massive piles tons and tons of you know valuable treasure is that you need to be able to transport that treasure to a place where you could liquidate it right problem solved and this is an old problem with an old solution but uh you know mixing that with the with the ability to form your own mercenary company at level one also introducing the war game rules. And here's something that came up in the game that illustrates that. Uh, we had a mass combat where uh, we encountered, you know, something like 24, uh, you know, flesh-eating monsters, all right? And so uh, the whole, both parties, the, the flesh-eating monsters and our whole crew just crashed into each other in a large room. And the dungeon master was able to use mass combat rules to efficiently adjudicate that combat. Something that you can't do in 5th edition right out of the book. Like D&D 5th edition, you can't do a 25 on 25 battle. That'll take you three hours. But but AD&D, Gary knew what he was doing. AD&D does it right out of the box. Yeah. Trivially. 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 AD&D 1E is not you and the boys. It's you, the boys, and your private army. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Uh, highly, highly recommended that stuff. Uh, and it was it's a great fun to play that way. It is... People think that first-level characters are these weak and useless adventurers, and they want to start everybody off at third level. Um, and that's probably true in second edition because they took a lot of things out of the game that, uh, they didn't realize were there for different things. Um, because AD&D is badly edited and... A lot of the rules are really opaque and they depend on you either knowing or having to reconstruct what Gygax meant by referring to OD&D and or chainmail. Um, so, but when once you have gone through this process, you start to learn a lot of things about how powerful first level characters in AD&D really are you know fighters being able to lead up to 10 armsmen hirelings uh, so they can they can have 10 zeroth level warriors following you around attacking 
the enemy or hauling stuff or, you know, guarding things or whatever. Uh, and no other character class can do that. Not your rangers, not your paladins, and obviously, you know, no thieves, clerics, or magic users and their, you know, subclasses. Nobody can do that but fighters. Mm -hmm. And good. And that makes fighters really, they don't have a lot that is signposted in the fighter class in the player's handbook. But these additional abilities that you find in other places in the room make fighters really powerful just in ways that. Um, aren't obviously noticed in the beginning because they're scattered across uh, the rules. I, I'd agree. And in my interpretation of that, like how that came about, is that in those early days of gaming, uh, it was common or expected or, or standard procedure for characters, particularly low-level characters, to have hirelings. It, it is, and it's encouraged even as late as, uh, you know, the red box basic game. It's sort of expected that you're going to at least hire a guy, a non-combatant guy, to hold a torch, keep a map, or you know, help carry stuff out, right? You know, hiring people is a normal part of the process. And as early as second edition, that just went away. And they took all that stuff away from the um, warriors. And the reason why it's so hard to find, not only because of the editing, I'll grant you that, not only because of the editing, but because that part of the gaming culture wasn't there. It wasn't part of the gaming culture anymore. That you have to sort of go dig through the rules and and find a rule on mercenary companies or find a rule on on how to handle you know 10 men as a single unit right and you wonder why is that there and that's one of the thing the valuable things that the brosar have done is uh, by simply experimenting with those rules you get a picture you get a a, a glimpse into what that mindset might have looked like. Of course, Gary didn't have to write this whole section spelling out a level one fighter may hire up to 10 uh, men at arms as a mercenary company, right? He, he didn't have to write that out. That was just a guy who plays a level one fighter says, okay, uh, hey, Dungeon Master, um, how many, how many, I want to hire a bunch of guys with spears and padded armor. How many guys can I afford? Or how many, how many guys are available, right? That's not a part of the normal game these days. Uh, and that's that's the really valuable thing. But I think that's that's why the AD&D uh, Dungeon Master's Guide is that much difficult, more difficult to read. Because all of those parts of gaming culture that were understood by the writer and his initial readers weren't there. Yeah, they were implicit in the in the body of knowledge it just got uh, passed down because everybody knew them. Um, and I think it would have 
I don't know. I mean, Gary Gygax was around clear up until the 2000s. Uh, but he was kicked out of AD&D and pushed out of AD&D. And I'm not, I'm not one of those people who stayed around to read all the threads he was commenting in or uh, all the Q&As. Um, if he had continued in TSR, I wonder what his second edition AD&D would have been. Uh, if they would have gotten someone to come in and say, okay, let's organize AD&D and let's, you know, we don't have to change a bunch of rules, but let's just take all these gray areas where we're not sure where we've got these other people who have only learned to play from reading the books and let's, let's give them more information. So we can illuminate all of these implied areas that nobody really knows what they mean and they haven't been able to pick up on. So we can transmit the culture better. Mm -hmm. Um, And we are almost out of time. So I'm going to quickly talk about the thing I wanted to talk about. Let's do it. You mentioned something before the show. Uh, something that you yeah, I saw. I saw a video by D&D Shorts. Um, he's a guy who uh, got a lot of the leaks from Wizards of the Coast employees during the OGL 2.0 and OGL 1.2 discussions. Um, and he's ta- he was talking about the most useless spell in D&D 5. And the most useless spell in D&D 5 was, in his opinion, C, invisibility. And the reason why it was useless is because while it allowed the person to see invisible creatures, it did not take away the invisible condition from them, nor did it negate the strengths of their invisible condition, which is they get advantage on attack and you have disadvantage to attack them. So in essence, you can see invisible creatures, but you have all the same penalties on attacking them. So what it allows you to do is direct quote, is see the invisible creatures kicking your ass. (laughs) um and this just brings me to a general principle of game design which is and and it ties into this gaming culture thing a lot of gms want specific rules for everything because they've never been taught to wing it. And the quote from Jeffro 
in the bro sr is if it's not in the rules it works the way you think it would so if your game doesn't have specific rules for how much damage a character takes from being hit by a charging bull or a stampeding cow, it works the way you think it would. Just wing it. This is, and the more detailed these guys try to make their rules, so in order to counteract this, in order to make game masters who really don't trust themselves, they don't have the confidence. I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm not saying they're you know stupid or anything. All of which other people have said and say regularly on message boards and on Twitter and, and all sorts of places. They sneer at other game masters and say, oh, you're so stupid or, you know, whatever. You're just not a real game master. Put on your Viking hat. Whatever the hell people are saying. They're none of those things. They just haven't had learned the confidence to be a game master, which is the confidence to ideally take the rules as written and extend them to cases that are not in the rules. That's one way to explicitly design a game and communicate those expectations to the game master. Here are the rules. Here are the situations that we have explicitly designed the rules to cover. And we've given you a bunch of examples of how the rules work. Now take these principles and examples and apply them to other situations in the way that you think they would work based on reality. We're not going to try and build rules that apply to every situation. You just go ahead and do it because we have confidence in you and that's how what a game master is supposed to do. That's what game mastering is. You notice that systems that have been around for a long time tend to develop cruft. And what cruft is, is more and more and more specific rules for specific situations, because that's what people tend to want. They want crunch. They don't want fluff, right? Mm. And so you get more and more rules, which kind of encumber your uh, system. And then when you make a second edition, they just include all those rules whether or not they should be included or i should say whether they should be included or not so the problem is the more of these rules you include the bigger a chance you're going to have that either you forgot to use those rules when you needed to, as in that invisibility spell, which needed explicitly a line saying, the person who casts, the person who this spell is cast on ignores 
the effects of the invisibility condition. It doesn't take away the invisibility condition because you've invented the invisibility condition. You've given it a proper name. It's in the list of conditions like poisoned and stunned and whatever, surprised. You've made it this official thing with an official title and official effects. And I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. But now, every time in the rules that you reference invisibility, you have to specifically take that rule into account as a designer, not the game master. This is now the designer's responsibility to take that rule into account and to provide for exceptions to that rule when it's necessary, when it's applicable. It is not the game master's job to do the designer's job for them. So you need to say in that spell description explicitly right on front, right up front, when whoever this spell is cast on, they ignore the effects of the invisibility condition. And probably you should say, the invisible characters do not get advantage when attacking them, and they do not have disadvantage when attacking invisible beings. Just to be sure, everybody knows what that means. That is your job as a game designer to put those explicit rules in there. And sure, you can come along and say, well, that's just common sense. The game master should know to do that. If it were a game where you didn't have some official condition with official mechanics attached to it, maybe. But that's not the kind of game 5e is. The entire game is structured with a lot of rules to cover the, you know, almost every situation and all of these official conditions so if that's the kind of game you've built and the assumed culture of your game is to have rules for everything or nearly everything then you need to be comprehensive if you're building a comprehensive rule set you need to be comprehensive with your rules and explicitly take your rules into account and apply them when you need to apply them. You can't take away Game Master initiative in nearly every situation and then forget to do what you're supposed to do with one spell and say, well, all these game masters we've trained to not do this thing, they must do this thing with regards to this one spell. That's just lazy design, honestly. That is the game designers not doing what they have to do with the culture that they've set up. So, and the last thing I want to say is to come back around to rule zero. And the, the BRO-SR 
Rails against rule zero, which is game masters just going in and changing rules willy-nilly. And that comes from playing AD&D, which does not need to be rule zeroed in the vast majority of cases. The only time it really needed to be rule zeroed is when Gygax wrote a rule that was so opaque, you literally could not understand it or apply it with the assumptions people were bringing to the table about. In that case, it was literally that you could not interpret the rule, not that you know you could interpret the rule and you just didn't want to. Um, so, if you try to rule zero A, D, and D, generally what you end up with is destroying the intended effect of the rule and ruining what AD&D was supposed to do. And a lot of the positive effects of the AD&D rule set that you would get from, for example, one-to-one time during downtime, um, that you would get from, you know, uh, rating your player characters on the role they played with their class, um, adjusting XP for the degree of challenge, uh, gold pieces for XP, all of these things, you, you don't get the full benefit of all of them. And the game turns out to be something very, very different and something just not as fun. So the Bro SR is very, very much against rule zero. But Gary Gygax had 10 years of playtesting OD&D as it slowly developed into AD&D. AD&D was the fruits of him growing from a very, very simple and basic rule set and developing rules at the table, developing classes at the table, developing monsters at the table um, and including a lot of uh, rules that came from wargaming and things like that to build a fairly comprehensive rule set that was nonetheless fairly loose in how it applied with the implicit understanding that game masters when they were making judgments, that everything at the table worked the way they think it should. Um, so, rule zeroing AD&D really wasn't necessary because it actually is a solidly designed rule set. Once you get over the writing and once you get over the editing, the rule set itself is really well done. Agreed. So when they say don't rule zero anything, they're, they're right, but also they're wrong. They're right when it comes to AD&D, and they're wrong when it comes to 
a lot of the games published today, because a lot of the games published today are not as play tested as AD&D was over the long term, nor were they plus play tested as AD&D was in the breadth and the number of campaigns OD&D and, and then, you know, the Menser box set uh, or AD&D's or the various rules changes leading up to AD&D from, as OD&D developed. They've just not been tested enough to have the bugs recognized and taken out. So they are not just as solidly built as AD&D. And that's not even their fault. I'm not going to say that's because they're bad game designers. You don't sneer at people who haven't had the practice or haven't had the time. That's like looking at somebody who just started out in the minor leagues and laughing at them because they're not as good as a veteran, you know, major league pitcher. Well, of course they're not as good. They literally just started high school baseball. You can't expect them to be good, and it's stupid to laugh at them. You're wrong. Um, but you can say, and legitimately can say, this game is inferior to this other game that was play-tested broadly and deeply over a long period of time. That's just a fact. Uh, so. My argument in support of Rule Zero is this. If a game has obvious flaws that can be corrected, you can correct them. But you really ought to understand why the rule is the way it is in the first place. And if you can't explain why the rule is the way it is, you shouldn't Rule Zero it. And two, you should only Rule Zero it if you can come up with if you can explain what the problem with the rule is, or if you understand what the problem with the rule is, even if it's only implicitly, and your solution to the change is superior if you're making the game better. If you're not making the game better, then your solution is useless and you should just run the game as is so let me brag i started playing third edition and right out of the gate i saw a big problem and i said nope that's not going to fly with me i know that's a problem i know it will be a problem this wasn't based on play testing it wasn't based on anything else but me immediately knowing that this is going to be a problem and immediately changing it and uh coming up with a new rule. Now, that was I, at this point in time, I'd been doing game design as an amateur for, oh, 11 years. Um, so I had had a lot of experience and then play testing game design and play with various groups and getting my designs crucified by a really uh by harsh feedback from a group i was on which is a good thing i'm not complaining i'm very grateful for that experience um 
But so I had had experience being a game designer. I'd had experience uh, having my rules tests, and I had experience with other games that did this part of the rules better. And so I took one of their rules and I just adapted it and then threw in my own stuff on top and said, this is going to work better. That is definitely no, no, I'm not doing that. Never will. And so a few years later, I heard about this exploit in DMD 3E, which they called the Diplomancer, where you stacked on feats and bunches of other stuff and you could turn all the NPCs to permanent friends and have them do anything. And I was genuinely confused. I was like, how the hell can you do that in the rules? I have never, ever, ever had that problem. And so I went back and looked at my rules for charming and persuading people. And I realized the reason that had never happened in my game was because right at the beginning, I was reading how they were doing charm and diplomacy and i knew out of the gate that it was wrong i knew out of the gate that that whole hey make this rolling the npc will be your permanent friend forever was not gonna fly that it was a hole in the rules that it was an exploit and i had changed that rule before i started running any DD third edition and i was right and time proved me right i was a I had, in that one specific rule, been a better game designer than the game designers who made the game. And so I fixed it. And that is a perfect example of where rule zero works. I saw the problem. I was right about the problem. I fixed the problem. And my game was better for it. So while I will not rail against rule zero categorically i will say that the criteria for applying game masters doing house rules is not oh this and this is what typically people do something bothers them about a rule and without thinking about what the rule is or what the problem might be or why it bothers them they slap on some kind of uh change to the rule that they call a house rule and they continue playing and then that house rule causes other problems and so the game gets distorted and they don't even realize why there are problems in the game and so they end up applying other changes and pretty soon they're playing something that has nothing to do with the original game. I have seen this again and again and again. And they don't even have a basis on which to discuss their problems with everybody else. Because every time someone asks them about it, it turns out there's a house rule and then another house rule behind that. And, and they don't want to talk about all these other house rules. They want to talk about how to fix this one rule that's going wrong that they blame the game and the game designers for when it's not their fault it's your fault so rule zero with caution know why a rule exists before you change it make a know why you think it's a problem and then ask yourself is this really a problem or is this just 
kind of annoying and we need to learn to live with the annoyance because it's a good rule overall, like keeping track of encumbrance. And then um, if it is going to be, you know, if you are going to come up with a solution, think of the solution, look at the problem, make sure the solution addresses the problem, and then play test it and be willing to change. Uh, I came up with some new powers for a cleric uh, in my uh, second, third edition campaign. And at one point, I realized I had grossly overpowered one of the powers I gave the cleric. And the cleric player who was playtesting him for me also agreed that I had grossly overpowered it. And everybody at the table agreed. And so I decreased the damage of that power by one step. I think it's from D6 to D4 damage uh, because there was multiple dice you could put into it. Uh, and that made the power balanced. Uh, or at least it wasn't an exploit. <clears throat> and it was such a cool use of the power. Um, but he could still use the power in the future that way, just with a little bit less damage. And, and it wasn't so, you know, wasn't so overpowering. So I learned to, you know, I had to change. And, and admit I, that what I was I doing was wrong. I, I know we're way over, but uh, I, I do want to ask you about that. It, it seems to me, especially you mentioned encumbrance, which makes me think of uh, what happens commonly, which is uh, at a table with, pe with people who use rule zero, they'll just say, oh, that rule's done. We don't use it. Right. They'll throw out rules that they don't like or change rules yeah. that they don't like. Um, that's a, that's one of the problems with rule zero is that uh, people don't uh, people often lack the discernment or they just don't care uh, about the you know the knock-on effects of the rule so i guess how, do you have any any ideas on how to make sure that you know what you're doing when you're doing those kinds of rules or to play devil's advocate maybe it's just more important to just have fun at the table well, I know, I know Jeff seething at that one. That's the thing is, I mean, do you mean from the point of view of a person giving advice to game masters or the point of view of a game designer? Uh, I don't, I don't think the point of the game designer is relevant because we're talking about a situation where uh, we've got someone who is running the game. Like I'm talking about the, the, situation that in which rule zero is invoked and in which a game master changes or breaks a rule well i i think the point of view of a game designer actually is important because you can't force people not to do things at the table but you can communicate to the players or to the game master hey these rules here are here for a reason. And some of them may seem kind of nitpicky. Um, but there is a unique experience that these rules are specifically and explicitly and consciously designed 
to give you. And if you use the rules as written, there is something great on the other side of them that is more fun than if you ignore these rules and don't use them. So this rule about encumbrance may be a little bit annoying because it requires you to do some uh, paperwork. But on the other side of it, it is going to make the game more challenging and more satisfying and more enjoyable than if you just ignore this rule. So I'm just going to ask you, you know, as a game designer, don't ignore the rules. Don't change them for no reason. Use the rules as written and you will have a better time than if you just ignore anything that kind of annoys you. Roll with the annoyance. Learn not to be annoyed by it, and you will have a superior time than if you just start changing rules at random. You can literally build a culture around your game by how you approach the material in the game, how you build the rule set, and the advice you give game masters and players. And if you foster that approach to the game, if you let people know, I have looked at these rules, I have looked at a lot of different rules, there are specific effects I I want you to enjoy, I want you to have. I have crafted these rules to build something enjoyable for you, so play them as they are, and you will have a superior experience. If you don't play them as they're written, you're not gonna have as much enjoyment as you can get out of this game. See, I'm coming at this whole situation from the point of view of not just advice, general advice to give game masters, but as the point of view of a game designer trying to put something together to sort of revive a culture. And you can't revive a culture just by, or only by tweeting about it, or only by emphasizing it and telling people how good it is. That is a necessary step. And that is a good step. And that is a positive step to uh communicate the culture to people but sooner or later you have to put forth an explicit declaration of the culture in a game where you show people hey this is how all this works and my thesis is if you craft the rules around that culture, and if you craft the rules so that they aid that culture, so that every rule points people in that direction, then you can literally teach players and teach game masters what it's like to play games where they will get more enjoyment out of it than they have before. 
even if there's a little sacrifice of, you know, bookkeeping or discipline required at the beginning, what comes out of it later will be so much more worth it. Well said. And Jeffro's got a question for you. We'll take one more before calling it. Oh, this might be Jeffro was here. This might be rhetorical. What if the rules actually supported and reinforced a particular play culture? What's your response? Well, that's my goal. Um, with the secret project, part of which is a, a role-playing game. I think I've said that before. I'm crafting the rules to support and reinforce a particular play culture. Um, AD&D does it kind of implicitly, but I think we have seen that implicit support of the original play culture isn't enough because people got away from that and all of those things got lost. The bro SR wouldn't have had to rediscover all those things and all those play styles if that play culture and the assumptions of it hadn't got lost. So I believe to recreate that play culture, to reintroduce that play culture to role playing, uh, to the role playing, you know gamers as a whole you have to have a game that explicitly explains this style of play to people and ideally that it's a hit game it's a hit game that lots of people come to because they think it's awesome and they want to play and then they learn a new way of of approaching role-playing games from it and having a rule, having rules that support and reinforce this, you know, not old school, because it's older than old school. It's primordial school almost. Um, but the generally the play culture that the Broasar has found um, or rediscovered. Um, yeah. That is uh, my goal when I'm creating rules is to bring that play culture into explicit uh, encouragement and also to craft rules that if you're playing the game, rules as written, it will teach you things to do that are this kind of play culture. All um, right. It will teach uh, you how to do things right. Good answer. That's a great place to stop it for tonight i'm glad we got that rant in uh anything else that you want to say before we go no that's... 
that was awesome great show uh i really appreciate everybody hanging out i hope uh the live chat enjoyed the discussion and everybody later uh takes a closer look at the stuff we talked about today it's always great fun talking about this stuff with you daddy war pig but i'm done for the week yeah um Jeffro, if you want to talk a bit after the show, um, I'll give you a link to to come into the stream yard and we can talk for a bit because I really would like to talk to you about a couple of these things if you have some time. There we go. Well, DW, you ready to send us off? Absolutely. Let's. We'll call it a Saturday. Unless you met, unless you went and wanted to talk to Jeffro live. No, 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 not on the air. Just we're done. Let's go. We're out of here. Because uh, <laughs> if I talk to him in private, I can talk about things that are not ready for. Well, then uh, then send us off, DW, if you would, please. Oh, I was waiting for you, because usually you go first. I did. I went already. Oh, so sorry. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we thank everyone who came and participated to the show uh, live and, uh, you know, jumped in our chat, uh, had some discussions. And uh, as always, you want to thank the people who will listen later. Uh, this is Geek Gab for... Saturday, February 4th, and we uh, are available at youtube.com slash geekgab. That's youtube.com slash geekgab. We're also available on soundcloud.com or the Apple iTunes store and on the Google Play store. So you can listen to us on the device of your choice or download us to your computer or listen to us on the web. And uh, we are signing off for today. But don't you worry. Don't you fret, we will be back.